What's going on? Well, for those who don't know, you know that that gender reveal fire? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I live so close, I can see it from my kitchen window. So I've got like a week long headache going from all the smoke. And there's ash also on my porch. Like straight up ash. Is there a point where you get evacuated? Like, is that a possibility of something that could happen? So here's the fun. So we, the fire is headed away from us. However, there's this fun thing called the Santa Ana winds. And they've decided to make their fucking appearance and blow in our direction. So they can carry an ember and just start a fire That's wherever terrifying. the fuck they want yeah it's super fun you know especially because once my cats get a whiff of us deciding that we were gonna leave they will hide under the bed and i'm gonna burn to a crisp trying to out. save them or that yeah or that so it's been it's been a hoot it's been just oh, hashtag blessed i can't but. imagine living somewhere that you have to worry about fire Oddly, it wasn't something I really thought about when I moved out here. I was more concerned with the earthquakes. Guess how many earthquakes we've had and guess how many fires we've had. I'll give you a hint. One is more than the other. Yeah. So. So fun. Well, today's episode's not about the fires. No. It's about it's some other shit. Yeah. Some shitty shit. Some... I mean, I guess the fires you can count as as a true crime. I mean, yeah, because these fucking dipshits, quite frankly, I mean, this is why everybody, I'm hashtag child free. If I ever had a doubt, these fires just sealed it for me because these motherfuckers set off like it's like a pyrotechnic thingy. Yeah, it's that, like one of those like smoke bomb things yeah. that has either the like the pink or the the blue yeah, smoke. Yeah. Why yeah. the fuck? And let me tell you something. The only thing this gender reveal thing showed us was that this baby is the goddamn antichrist because if you look at the sky, it's fucking orange. The sun is red. Yeah, right. Like it's it's the end of times. It was the worst of times. It was the end of times and I'm just I they Yeah. I saw a tweet saying something that's like wouldn't it be uh, a killer if the kid ends up being non-binary i my friend actually messaged that to me she was like what if the kid ends up like gender non-conforming or non-binary and i'm like honestly i almost hope the kid is because it's not the kid's fault it's the parent's fault yeah and yeah exactly the footage apparently shows like everybody at this party and that's the other thing they're not social distancing so already we have a problem oh there's a ton of people uh by me that have just i guess forgotten that the pandemic is still going on having yeah. huge rip roaring parties oh hell yeah and it's like the longer you dig your heels in the longer we're gonna have to fucking do this and i want to go to your wedding yeah oh one of them actually was uh <laughs> I you meant close... one of your weddings <laughs> no one of the big parties was actually close to uh where i used to live and i know the people and they were having a uh, bridal shower. A giant fucking bridal shower. And they had COVID. The, oh, my God. They The whole family had had it, like, a couple weeks ago. And for those who aren't as in the loop as I am in terms of just obsessively refreshing any and all information about COVID, you can get it more than once. Yeah. You're only immune for, I think, it's like three months. Yeah. Because, of course, it would fucking evolve like that yeah of course yeah Ugh, i hate it's people. a fucking nightmare whatever yep like, anyway what are we talking about well we're really gonna boost our mood today oh we're yeah let's talk- just get more angry <laughs> yeah and and truly like this is sad but more than anything it's so like what's the word that i'm looking for it's it's just very like, it just makes you want to say, ugh, does that make sense? Like, yeah. it's so unfortunate. It's not just sad. It's just, it, it, sh- uh, you'll see, you'll see, you'll see, you'll see. We'll get into right. it. Um, so our episode today, this is Crime Culture. That's Haley. I'm Caitlin. I'm on fire. We're talking about Rebecca Schaefer. What? 
I said I'm not on fire. You're not, not but you're hot. You think? <laughs> um, so Rebecca Schaefer was born Rebecca Lucille Schaefer on November 6th, 1967 in Eugene, Oregon. And she was the only child of Dana. This this word never ceases to befuddle me. Nay. Nay. Oh, me? yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I you guess, know. Like whatever, what her maybe. maiden name was? Yes. The artist formerly known as Wilner. Okay. Um, now Schaefer, who was a writer and instructor at Portland Community College. And she also wrote plays. Um, and Dr. Benson Schaefer, a child psychologist. And... Rebecca was raised in the Jewish faith in Eugene before moving to Portland, where she went to high school. And she actually initially wanted to become a rabbi. She was very um, involved in her faith. Mm -hmm. And her father, Benson, said, quote, we were very lucky as a family. She was sort of a mystery because if she wanted to do something, she could do it. She really sort of learned by looking and doing, and it was easy, end quote. Mm. So... She wanted to be a rabbi, but then she changed her mind about her future career when she began modeling during her freshman year at Lincoln High School in Portland. And it's quite she, different things. Yes, right? Like <laughs> one end of the spectrum and the other. Yeah. Um, so, though, then again, I had a teacher in high school who taught us about the New Testament because hashtag Catholic high school. And uh -huh. she went on and on and on our entire sophomore year about how she was seriously considering becoming a nun. And then she came back from summer break having met a dude and gotten engaged. So well, everybody, okay everybody is allowed to change their minds. Yeah. Um, and never forget it. Every morning before class, let us say a prayer for the unborn. Anyway. So she appeared in department store catalogs, TV commercials. Uh, she was an extra in a TV movie. So she was starting to become a bigger fish in a smaller pond because she was uh -huh. finding a lot of success. And if you look her up, she's real cute. Like, she's just a super cute girl. Yeah. Um, so her father, Benson, later said, quote, she was interested in drama. She was always in the center of the popular group. She really wanted to be an actress. And when she was 14, someone said, you really ought to be modeling, end quote. Mm. So she did. And she was pretty damn good at it. So much so that with her parents' permission, in August 1984, so she was 16, she moved to New York on her own to start a modeling career. Wow. I know. And... So she, while she was working in New York, um, she went to the Professional Children's School or PCS. And for those who don't know, that's where like all of the child um, performers went. Like I'm, I'm yeah. like Laura Bell Bundy from TV and Broadway, yeah. uh, Misha Barton, Phoebe Cates, Holly Marie Combs, all of the Culkin brothers, like all of them went there. Like yeah. all kinds. Elliot Gould went there. So, you know, it goes back a while. Sarah Michelle mm -hmm. Geller went there. Um, it's a big, it's a big, it's a BFD, big fucking deal. Um, so she's going to school. She's living by herself in New York. And she ended up booking a short term role on the daytime soap opera Guiding Light. And then in late 1984, she landed the role of Annie Barnes on ABC's One Life to Live, which was about a six month stint. And so then when she was done with that, she moved to Japan in 1985 in hopes of finding more modeling jobs. But and she she moved to Japan to find more modeling jobs because she had an issue in New York with her height. She was 5'7". She was she was thin, but she wasn't like she wasn't heroin chic. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so she like she had a normal looking. She was healthy. Body. Yeah. She, yes, exactly. She <laughs> ate. Um, yeah. She had more than just a cube of cheese like every three days um so that was a problem because she wasn't the right height for high fashion modeling in new york yeah. and then her height and her weight were a similar issue in japan it turned out so yeah she, she didn't have a lot I think of ja in japan everyone's a lot shorter right yes everybody's a lot yeah. shorter and they're also teeny tiny like my sister's 411 yeah she's a size i think she's like a size three in children's shoes <laughs> like I, it's like so crazy it's it's wild though she makes a killing with shoes as a result because a lot of like big name brands i guess do they don't mommy sell and those me. sizes no they do mommy and me 
So oh, she gets okay. like children's Gucci sneakers for like a fraction of what adult sizes would be yeah. just because. And there's always a fuck ton of them because everybody's got the money to spend on themselves. So they're obviously not spending it on their children. Like one yeah. does not equate the other unless you're a Kardashian. So it's just, it's wild. And hi, Megan. But yeah, they're all too small. So she didn't really like find any success there either and ended up going back to New York and decided to solely focus on acting. So she worked as a model part-time still to pay the bills and she also worked as a waitress and landed a couple small roles. One was like a Woody Allen movie, Um, but she didn't get her big break until 1986 when she landed a co-starring role as Patricia Patty Russell on the CBS sitcom My Sister Sam, which starred Pam Dauber from Mork and Mindy, and Joel Brooks, who has like a long ass list of impressive works under his belt. If you look him up, you go, oh, I know that guy. Yeah. But in my opinion, the most important being the evil uncle in the Princess Diaries 2 royal engagement. Oh, because, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, exactly. You look at him, you yep. go, oh, I know that guy. Yep. Um, which also, by the way, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can watch it for free on Disney Plus. <gasps> Incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to pay like the $6.99 a month or whatever, but it's not $30 to watch it once. Like that rip off of a Mulan live action Mulan. movie that doesn't even have Mushu. Doesn't even have Mushu. Like I, you think I'm going to pay $30 to not? Yeah, it doesn't have Mushu. I'm wow. sorry. Like. If you don't give me Mushu and Grandmother Fa, then I'm not watching. <laughs> Does she say beads of jade for beauty? Because that's my favorite line in the entire movie. She, I don't know if she's in it either, but... That's fucked up. I don't want to see it anymore. I know. I know. It's bullshit. And also, they better have that tea scene with the matchmaker. That is all. But yeah. I won't know because I'm not paying for it, which means you're not getting it either. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Fuck that. <laughs> for those who don't know, Haley's on my Disney+. Plus. I am. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Um, but yeah. So moving on to what we're actually talking about. Uh-huh. So My Sister Sam premiered on October 6th, 1986, and it was scheduled between the show Kate and Allie and the other show New Heart, which were both really big hits for CBS. So it was in a really good spot. Okay. And uh, because of the placement and because it was a good show it was a success in its first season and it got pretty good ratings and was ranked number 21 by the end of the first season so cbs renewed it for a second and moved it to saturday nights to compete with nbc's most successful sitcom which was the facts of life and that proved to be a bad move because yeah i was gonna say i heard of the facts of life i've never heard of this other one yeah no nobody can compete with mrs garrett yeah like you just can't So by the end of October 1987, so after a year, the audience had one of the lowest on the network, and it was ranked at number 71. So it fell 50 spots. Yep. For those who can't do math like me. Um, So the series went on hiatus that November as a result, and they continued with production, though, and the network tried to figure things out, but it ended up being brought back because of a ton of fan letters and also it was at the time the 1988 writers guild of america was on strike Uh so they didn't really have any new content to put out there anyway so by march 15th 1988 they it's back and they moved it again this time to tuesday nights but at that point it's been moved twice nobody really knows like it was taken off the air and then it was randomly brought back yeah so it just kind of did the show in and by that april yeah that april they ended up pulling the series from cbs's lineup because the ratings didn't improve probably because Uh nobody knew when the fuck it was on and that may it was canceled with only 12 episodes of the season being aired And all of the other episodes were never aired until USA Network bought the syndication rights, at which point they aired all, I think there's like 24 episodes or something like that. Yeah, that's what they would do for uh, for old sitcoms and stuff, 22, 24. Yeah. So that's the only reason people can still see it now. There were 44 episodes total. Wow. 
So, yeah. Um, but at the time of the series' first season, when it was doing really well, Schaefer's star began to rise. And she was featured on the cover of Seventeen magazine. And mm-hmm. both she and Dauber were featured on the cover of TV Guide, which had 40 million readers at the time. So wow. that was, an, yeah, that was another big one. And she also started receiving fan mail as a result, mm-hmm. which included letters from a teenage fan from Arizona named Robert John Bardo, who suffered from bipolar disorder and paranoid schizophrenia. And Bardo had a troubled childhood. He was abused by one of his siblings. And then he, after he threatened to commit suicide, his family put him in a foster home, which obviously isn't going to fucking help things. Um, But then he, when he was 15, he was institutionalized for a month to treat, quote, emotional problems. And then around that time, when he was in the ninth grade, he dropped out of school and began working as a janitor at the Jack in the Box. Oh, God. Yeah. And so he didn't have much of any interests besides, as was about to happen, Rebecca Schaefer. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Um, So prior to discovering, for lack of a better word, Rebecca, um, he was obsessed with and stalked a child peace activist named Samantha Smith. And the only thing that ended his obsession was when she passed away in a plane crash in 1985. Oh, Jesus. Yes. And so then he kind of, things kind of calmed down in terms of being obsessed with people you shouldn't be obsessed with. And then in the summer of 1986, he saw her in, Bardo saw Schaefer in a promotional commercial for My Sister Sam. And he felt, upon just seeing her playing a character Mm. on a promo for a TV show, that they were kindred spirits. Both of them were shy and genuine. And so he did what any classic romantic did and started sending her a fuck ton of letters. That's terrifying. Yep. Yep. At one point, though, which is so Schaefer, in all of my research, everybody kept saying what a nice person she was to the point of being a little naive. Like she just saw the best in everyone, treated everybody very kindly. Like, you know, the girl that a guy is clearly being creepy, but she's too polite to tell him to fuck off. Yeah, that's who she is. And (sighs) there was a point where actually her makeup artist on the show said later that she was receiving like all kinds of shit from this guy at the set. It was being mailed to the studio lot. And she was like, no, 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 no. I think you should ignore this guy. I like people are crazy and this could be really bad if you don't, if you like pay any attention to it, like people are not just nice for no reason. He sounds a little crazy. Yeah. But at one point, Schaefer, because she tried to make a point of doing this with all her fans, answered one of Bardo's letters. And in it, she said, yours was one of the nicest I got. Uh-huh. So. Too Playing nice. into it a little too much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, but like, that's the thing. Like, if, if, if you get that from like your favorite celebrity, you know that they're just like writing that to be nice. Like, you know what I mean? It's not like. Yeah. Like, John Stamos isn't going to leave his wife, who is also named Caitlin, and be like, her letter meant the world to me. Fuck my new wife. Fuck my baby. And it's Disney nursery because I have too much time on my hands and I see a lot of Architectural Digest videos. I'm going to be Caitlin's. Well, I've, I've already got a boyfriend, but best friend. Best friend. We'll go with best friend. Uh-huh. So that's what th- that's kind of what Bardo got from this, though. Like, this just fueled his obsession. Well, he already seemed to have some mental illness that he yes. was battling. He yeah. had a lot of issues, not just mental illness, but just in general, he was not completely there. Social, yeah, and it seems like socially stunted or something. Yes, yes, that's yeah. that's a great way to put it. Um, so in 1987, when Bardo was 17, he traveled to L.A. with a teddy bear and flowers and was hoping to meet with Schaefer on the set of My Sister Sam, but Warner Brothers security turned him away. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Jack Egger, who was the chief of security at the Burbank Studios, later told the L.A. Times, quote, I thought he was just lovesick, which I think he was. He was terribly insistent on being let in. Rebecca Schaefer was every other word. I got to see her. I love her. If I could just see her for one minute, end quote. So then Bardo. It's so creepy. Oh, it gets better because Bardo came back a month later, this time armed with a knife. But security guards, again, would not let him in. Did they see the knife? I don't know, but something tells me no. He also, there were were cases where he tried to sneak onto the lot, too, and they caught him. Yeah, okay. I can understand, like, the first time you don't let him in, the second time, okay, dude, you really can't come in, but... If you catch him sneak, like trying to sneak on, maybe you got to involve the police or something. You would think, but no. Especially because she's relatively young at this point too, right? Yeah, she's yeah she she is. Let's see, this is let's call it 1987. She's 19. Yeah, you got. She's a minor. Yeah, you have to, no, well, she's not a minor. Not, not a minor. <laughs> I was thinking under 21. Yes, but she's still like she's I would young. say 19. She's still she's kind a of a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, but that's the thing too, and we'll kind of touch on this later. Stalking was not seen as big of a deal, especially when it came to celebrities, as it is now. That's so crazy. Yeah. Um, I guess it takes events like this to, to really say, like, this is what stalking is and how dangerous it is. Shh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> You're going to do the thing again. Um, so, yeah, he couldn't get in. He tried everything. And then after My Sister Sam was canceled, Schaefer, her star continued to rise. She did not suffer from this cancellation. And she appeared in several movies. um, And that included a supporting role in the 1989 dark comedy Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, which Mm -hmm. starred Jacqueline Bissett, Ed Ed Begley Jr., and Wallace Shawn. And for those who are interested in watching, the movie has a 6 out of 10 on IMDb, an 85% Google score, and an 83% tomato meter rating with a 63% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. So, like... That's all still pretty good. Yeah, I was going to say, like, pretty good, especially because people have had a lot of time to rate and review these movie, this movie. Like, it came yeah. out 30 years ago. and. Yeah. People are still like, oh, yeah, it's it's all right. It's like, it could be worse. And I take that back because, oh, never mind. I don't take that back. I, I just went, I accidentally clicked on the link to it in my notes. Oh. And I, and yeah, and I thought that it said seven out of 10. I was like, it just jumped up since I last looked it up. It hasn't. It's still a six. I'm sorry, everybody. Um, but okay. yeah. They were listening to the moped outside my house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I don't know nothing about mopeds. Um, so Bardo went to the movies to see the love of his life, Schaefer. And turns out in this movie, so she had a supporting role. And part of her character's story arc was that she has a sex scene with another actor. Oh, no. Oh, yes. So oh, no. Bardo, Bardo went into a jealous rage over it because she had, quote, lost her innocence. Oh, I thought he was going to jack it so hard in the <laughs> full of Pee Wee Herman in the, uh, <laughs> the movie theater. And that's where we are with true crime. Yeah. I mean, there's two kinds of people. I wish it went in that direction. I truly do. I wish it went into that vein of true crime. Also, yeah. remind me, we should do an episode on Pee Wee Herman. Um, yeah, but, that's a fun one. Yeah. So and we're going to need a fun one after this. Yeah. So, yeah, so he thought she lost her innocence, and then he decided right then and there that he was going to punish Schaefer for her betrayal of becoming, quote, another Hollywood whore, end quote. Just like a white man to decide that a woman needs to be something. Seriously, like, no offense, but no, all the offense. If all the, the offense. Incel, if the incel movement was alive and kicking at that time, you already know homeboy would have been, like, driving a van into a crowd of women. all of the message boards. Yes! 100%. <laughs> this celebrity who has no clue who I am doesn't love me. Hashtag no fap November. But, yeah, it's, yeah, he was something else. So... He began researching Arthur Richard Jackson, who had stalked and stabbed, but 
please note, did not kill actress Teresa Saldana in 1982. And in his research, Bardo learned that Jackson had used a private investigator to get Saldana's address. So Bardo paid, it depends on, it depended on the source that I was looking at. So he paid somewhere between $250 to $300. That's nothing. To a detective agency in Tucson to find Schaefer's home address. And from other things that I saw, well, it gets, all right, this is a different kind of fucked up, but they... They found it by paying a small fee. Some sources said that it was as cheap as a dollar to get her information from the California Department of Vehicle Records. So he overpaid beyond that. Yeah. And like, I don't know what the um, like the California DMV like rules are, but like I work in a place that has like citizen information and I get like Open Public Records Act requests and stuff all the time and one of the requests that i get from like like i work in a a building office so uh i'll get real estate agents requesting um like the plans of a house because the new people want to see the house plans or whatever and ever since 9 11 we're not allowed to show anybody the inside like layout of somebody's house um wow yeah it can only be like the owner like if you come in with a photo id that like says your address on it then i can show you the interior house plans but like i can't give somebody house plans unless they are the actual owner wow that's that's wild and like good but yeah that was not the case back then um yeah but we'll we'll also get to that so yeah, they got her address and they gave it to him. And after he received the address, he did a dry run where he traveled to Shaper's neighborhood and walked around to kind of familiarize himself with like the location of her apartment building, uh, potential escape routes, should things go awry. Um, and also to ask her neighbors like, oh, wow, does Rebecca Schaefer really live here? Which they confirmed thinking he was just a fan. Like, oh, I heard Rebecca Schaefer lives around here. Is that true? Yeah. So after getting the information he wanted from the PI and her neighbors and just everything, he returned home to Arizona and his brother Edward helped him get a Ruger GP100.357 handgun for my gun listeners. Yeah, I don't know if I got that right, but just, okay. Um, don't come for us. <laughs> um. So... He His brother got it for him because he told his brother he wanted to do target shooting. And Bardo originally went to a gun store to obtain a gun himself. But the owner quickly realized that the 19-year-old had mental health issues and refused to sell to him. Well, thank God for out. that one person. Yes, except his brother still did it for him anyway. And yeah. his brother also told him basically like, you can have this, but you can only use it when I'm around. Hold on to the fucking gun. Yeah, right? Like, uh, like, especially if you're the one that put the money down for it, do you think it's not going to come back to you at some point if something happens? Exactly. Like, this is what I mean, though, when I was talking earlier, like how it's so frustrating. Like, the gun shop owner says, no, you're clearly not with it, and it's illegal to sell to you. So his brother goes and buys him a gun, and then with only the warning of only use it when I'm around, but you can keep it in your possession. Yeah. Yeah. My my brother, who has mental health issues that my entire family knows about, and it's no big secret, and also we have a family history of it, so even if there was any doubt. So, yeah. And in the 18 months prior to his final visit to Los Angeles, Bardo was arrested three times on charges that included domestic violence and disorderly conduct. Great. Still allowed to have that gun, though. Yep. So in 1989, I this I I feel like it doesn't really pertain to the story. Like, if you're taking the SATs and they're like pick a paragraph to eliminate this would be it but i think it's really nice and it just further goes to show how kind schaefer was and how trusting she was Uh uh-huh so in 1989 schaefer became a spokesperson for the organization thursday's child um which for those who don't know it's a charity for just like at-risk 
youth, specifically teenagers. Uh huh. But um, and it kind of it kind of fits into her whole thing because first of all, she's young, but also her character Patty on My Sister Sam is 16 years old, raised by her and her sister's aunt and uncle because their parents are dead, and she just up and decides when she's 16 that she's moving in with her 25 year old sister who is now going okay. to raise her. So it kind of fits into that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in April 1989, Schaefer went to a girl's shelter to sign autographs, and she was pretty, like, unsure about it, pretty reluctant, because she didn't think... First, she was like, well, who's who's to say that people are even going to know who I am? Um, yeah. But also, she was really concerned that they were going to be mad at her because she had to reschedule the original signing because she missed the first one because she was filming. Mm-hmm. And so she she felt bad about it, too. And she was like, even if they know who I am, they're going to be like, oh, this fucking bitch. Not only did everybody recognize her, but the girls swarmed her for her autograph and she made like a really deep connection with the kids mm-hmm. to the point that they were like oh there's this renaissance fair we're all going to in may can you please go with us and she did that's so cute yes and they had a lovely time like but that's what i mean like she was she was just like oh yeah i'll go to a renaissance fair with a bunch of teenage strangers who most people would give a little bit of a side eye to because they're in a program for at-risk youth and yeah. i'll go to a renaissance fair with them no problem and yeah, it was sweet. Yeah, exactly. So getting into the meat and potatoes, at about 5 a.m. on July 18th, 1989, Bardo arrived in Los Angeles for a third and final time. Well, no, not a final time, but a third time. He went to Schaefer's condo dressed as a flower delivery man at about 9.15 a.m. Mm. and rang her doorbell or her buzzer or whatever the fuck you want to call it. And she physically went down to answer because her intercom was broken. And so she wasn't able to be, like, carrying on a conversation via the intercom like everybody else was. Mm, Okay. So she went down to open the door herself and see who it was. And she didn't just ignore it like you or I would have done because she had been expecting a courier who was coming to deliver a script for the most important audition of her career, which was taking place later that day. Okay. The role of Mary, Al Pacino's character's daughter, Michael Corleone, in Francis Ford Coppola's 1990 film, The Godfather Part Three. Oh, wow. Yes, this was going to... That's huge. Yeah, it was going to completely change her career to the point that she actually had called her dad. Every actress in like the city all of los angeles was obsessed and really really wanted the role and she was lucky enough to get an audition she called her dad and was like so excited and he was like oh my god like call me when you're done to tell me how it goes and she was like totally like i will and she was really stoked about it and for what it's worth she was also rumored at the time to be in the running for the lead in an upcoming romantic comedy called pretty woman Oh. Yes. So again, just to emphasize, her future was super bright. And for, yeah. for the record, in case you don't know where this is going, Sofia Coppola ended up being cast in the role that Rebecca Schaefer was up for. Yep. So Schaefer answers the door, and Bardo shows her the letter she had sent him years ago and the signed photo that had accompanied it. And he asked her for an autograph and kind of told his story. And she obliged and they had a quick conversation but she even though he came to her fucking front door i'd be like this is creepy get the fuck out of here well wait so she like had a quick conversation with him and then politely ended it by saying that she had to go prepare for an interview and asked him not to come back to her home again yeah that's that's a good way to to cover yourself yes like but very polite very sweet yeah Bardo later remembered her concluding the conversation by telling him, quote, please take care, and that she took his hand. And he later said that he felt rejected because she didn't spend more time with him at the door. That's so fucking creepy. Homegirl makes physical contact, sweet as can be, asks him very politely, please don't come back to my home. 
Yeah, you have to realize how creepy that is, dude. Yeah, no, no. He's like in a completely different universe. Yeah. So he goes to a nearby diner to have breakfast, but then he returned to her condo an hour later at about 10.15 a.m. and again pressed the buzzer. So again, she's still waiting for this courier with the script. So she goes down and Bardo claimed that he had forgotten to give her another letter that he had written her and a CD he had brought for her. And he later said Schaefer allegedly had, quote, a cold look on her face, end quote. So you're telling her to smile? Um, Yeah. So she had this look on her face when she came down to open the door. And that she allegedly told him he was wasting her time, which he said was what set him off. So in a jailhouse interview. Oh, go ahead. A completely reasonable thing to say. It's like, dude, I'm waiting for this person to bring some shit to me. I told you not to come back here. You're creepy. Come into my house. And also her intercom doesn't work. She does not live on the first floor. So she's having to like go downstairs every time just in case it's this courier. Um, So even if she said that, which I don't know if she even did based on what people were saying, even if she did, she had every reason to. Yeah. So in a jailhouse interview, parts of which were played in court during his subsequent trial, Bardo said... Quote, she said, you came to my door again. It was like I was bothering her again. Hurry up. I don't have much time. I thought that was a very callous thing to say to a fan. You came to my door again. End quote. Bardo then told Schaefer, quote, I forgot to give you something and took the handgun from his waistband and shot her once in the chest. Mm. I'd also like to say, like, just add, he did this point blank. He literally put the gun to her chest and shot her directly in the heart. Oh, Jesus Christ. Schaefer screamed out, why? Why? And then fell backward into the doorway. And as if his story couldn't get creepier, Bardo had a copy of one of his favorite books. Tell the people what it is, Haley. Is it Catcher in the Rye? It's fucking Catcher in the Rye. (gasps) I liked that book when I was in high school. It never made me want to murder. Exactly. I'm sitting there like, did I like miss a key component here? Because that was my favorite book for a very long time. Yeah, I like that book. If you're, I guess, a lame white boy, I guess it's like you want to kill because of it. We're missing penises. Okay. That makes more sense. Dude, just fucking chill out. Yeah. And so for those who don't know what we're talking about, maybe you're new. Um, you must be new. Um, John Lennon's killer, Mark David Chapman, and Ronald Reagan's attempted assassin, John Hinckley Jr., were both carrying copies of Catcher in the Rye and felt that it had a lot of significance to them, but they both had them on their person when they shot their victims. Yeah. So after And we shooting- have a whole oh. episode on Mark David Chapman. I think it's our third Hell episode. Yeah. yeah, it's early. It's super early. Um, so yeah, after shooting Schaefer... Bardo threw the book onto the roof of the building and left, like just fled. Okay. He would, however, later insist that like having the book was just a coincidence and that he hadn't studied Chapman or Hinckley's crimes. So it's not like he had it for that reason. Which I think it's bullshit. Oh, I only studied Jackson. Like, yeah. Okay. You're not gonna tell me other shit didn't come up in your search, pal. Well, and not even just that. Like. Uh, that's not an excuse you still researched how to yeah how to do this like don't don't play it off like oh i only looked up one person like i mean that's like the guy that tried to shoot up my alma mater he had like news clippings and like clearly research from let's see the aurora colorado shooting sandy hook um and one other big one that that i can't remember like columbine guilty yeah like, oh, no, I didn't do it. I was just taking my guns to go shooting in New York when I work and live and go to school in Connecticut. Like, fuck off. Yeah. Um, with My illegal guns, by the way. They were automatic rifles, which are not legal in Connecticut. But anyway, I digress. I'm just still bitter because they let him out. Um, so moments later, actress Lynn Marta, who is best known for her role as Lulu in Footloose, she lived not just in the same building as Schaefer, but on the same floor. They were kind of like friendly. They were the same age. Yeah. Um, she came running after hearing the gunshot and the screaming and found Schaefer bleeding out in the doorway of their building and called 911. Ooh. Yeah. So Schaefer was rushed to Cedar sinai Hospital 
where she was pronounced dead 30 minutes after her arrival at the age of 21. 21, geez. 21 with two blockbusters on the table. Yeah. Like, she was going to be huge. Yeah. And that's where I'm just so frustrated. Like, she she wanted so badly to have, like, a huge impact, and she was so close to getting it. Yeah. So shortly after 12 p.m., a friend of Rebecca's named Tom Noonan, I don't know why I call her Rebecca in my notes here. Oh, now I know. Left a, mo- left a message for her mother, Dana, and she called him back 10 minutes later, thinking that he was just chatting away. She said later to Entertainment Weekly in 2017, quote, I still remember how sunny my voice sounded when he picked up the phone. Then he said, and these words are inscribed in my brain, Mrs. Schaefer, I have terrible news. This morning, Rebecca was shot and killed, end quote. See, that's something that, like, no one really, like, talks about is, like, if you've ever gotten, like, a terrible, like, phone call, like, mm-hmm. some horrible news, obviously, that's not the first thing that you think of when you pick up the phone. So, like, you pick up the phone, you're like, hi. Yeah. And then you hear the fucking worst thing. And that moment between you saying hi and that worst thing happening is just such, like, weird space in time. Yeah. It just, it feels so... It feels so long in between mm-hmm. those two moments. It's it's freaking crazy. And the fact that she mentions that, like, she specifically remembers that, that's... Oh, there's, there's so a lot. So sad. There's a lot she remembers. Yeah. Um, so Dana Schaefer didn't want to believe what Rebecca's friend had told her. So she called the hospital, but now they're not confirming anything. They can tell people's address, but once they're dead, I mean... Yeah, right? So she called to the, the hospital. her parent. Exactly. Um, they wouldn't confirm anything over the phone other than that, quote, a woman had been admitted and had died, end quote. So Dana then said, quote, at that point, I kind of knew. Then the detective called and it was all over, end quote. Wow. Yeah. Um, Benson was driving home from work, was driven home by work from a friend after he got the news from Dana. And when he met her at the door of their home, she could tell he was hopeful that everything was simply a really bad misunderstanding because he had also remembered just spoken to his daughter. Yeah. Um, And so she just kept yelling, quote, it's true. It's true. End quote. Ugh. So Benson said that he and Dana, quote, cried and sobbed together for a very long time, end quote. And said in an interview later, quote, I was in a state of shock. The entire world was just unbelievable to me, end quote. So within an hour, they were on a flight to Los Angeles to identify their daughter's body and make arrangements. Wow, that's so terrible. Mm -hmm. And to make it even more sad, because I'm not depressed already, Dana later saved the phone bill that showed the exact time she got the news her daughter died. July 18th, 1989, at 12.15 p.m. And she still has that bill to this day. Wow. Yep. So Schaefer's funeral was held in her hometown of Portland, Oregon. It was standing room only, with some people even having to stand outside the synagogue where the service took place. Yeah. And she's buried in Oregon as well. After the murder, Bardo, after, you know, chucking the fucking book on the roof fled to Tucson and was found the next morning running through traffic on Interstate 10, appearing to be like trying to get hit and killed by a car or truck and screaming, Uh. quote, I killed Rebecca Schaefer, end quote. Yeah, just completely psycho. Yep. But unfortunately, nobody hit him. And Tucson police officer Paul Hallams, after receiving several reports about calls from concerned motorists, Found and arrested Bardo. He later said, quote, we secured him right away, did a little quick pat down and search on him, found a picture of Rebecca Schaefer in his shirt pocket. He was disheveled looking. His clothes were dirty. His hair was a mess. He looked like he hadn't slept all night. We started putting two and two together. End quote. Yeah. At the police station, Bardo immediately confessed to Schaefer's murder and was promptly, remember when I said it was his last trip, except it wasn't to Los Angeles. Promptly extradited to L.A. to be tried, where he agreed to a plea bargain for a life sentence without the possibility of parole with the prosecutor, a young assistant D.A. named Marsha Clark. 
recognize that name? Yes, I do. All right. Well, for those who don't, she was the lead prosecutor in the O.J. Simpson trial. Yeah. And she also credits this case and spoiler alert, Bardo being put away to be one of her biggest like achievements in her career. Like she's yeah. she's very proud she got this guy put away. So Bardo made this plea deal, but two years later, he ended up going to trial after Schaefer's murder, like two years after, because he changed his mind about the plea bargain and decided to plead an insanity defense instead and try to get off. Great. Yep. So some journalists credited this trial as actually being the blueprint for the media's coverage of high profile crime. Like a lot of people think like, oh, the big the big case was the O.J. Simpson trial. Yeah. It was. Make no mistake. It was a huge fucking deal. But this case is basically what like it, it like taught the media how to act. Yeah. Like in the event of one of these trials. Um, Patrick Healy, a journalist at NBC Los Angeles who actually covered the case, recalled the Bardo trial being among one of the first cases to garner the attention of what he called, quote, a new breed, end quote, of nightly TV magazine programs, saying, quote, the Bardo trial became a trial run, so to speak. I, I don't know why I said that weird, but that's fine. Um, the Bardo trial became a trial run, so to speak, for the synthesis of justice and celebrity and foreshadowed what was to come with later high profile trials of music producer Phil Spector and actor Robert Blake, end quote. Wow. OK. Yeah. So during the trial, Robert Bardo claimed the YouTube song Exit was an influence on his murder, the, mm. the murder being carried out. And the song was played in the courtroom as evidence with Bardo lip syncing the lyrics. Ew. I know. He also said that he attempted to meet singers Debbie Gibson from Blondie and Tiffany. Like, you know, I think we're alone now, Tiffany. Yeah. And then it, it, he was just like, but Schaefer was the one I really, really cared about. Like, nah. they were, they were, they were like minor distractions. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, dude, you need, you need to get fucking help. So then Jeff Dunn, a retired LAPD detective, later said of the trial, Robert Bart, quote, Robert Bardo was a troubled young man. There was a history of a troubled childhood. He had threatened neighbors and schoolmates, end quote. And all of this came out during the trial. Uh-huh. Bardo's attorneys conceded that their client had murdered Schaefer. They're like, got us there. But they argued that he was mentally ill and brought in psychiatrist Park Dietz to support this theory by confirming that Bardo's schizophrenia is what led him to commit the murder. Mm-hmm. I, I know a few schizophrenics who, you want to know something? Funniest fucking thing. They've never killed anybody. Yeah, right? How weird is that? How unexpected? Yeah, every, every person I know with mental health problems has never committed an act of crime ever. Yeah. Like, shut the fuck up. Um... So in October 1991, Bardo was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In 2007, he was stabbed 11 times by two fellow inmates at the Mule Creek State Prison in Amador County, California, but lived. Wah, wah. Ugh. And those two inmates got time added to their sentence, which, like, I know we can't encourage bad behavior, but clearly they were big My Sister Sam fans. Um, so today, Bardo is serving out the rest of his sentence at Avenal State Prison here in the lovely, mostly on fire state of California. Mm. A month after Schaefer's murder in August 1989, now we're getting into like more of the pop culture stuff of it now that we're all nice and good and depressed. Yeah. Um, so the main cast of My Sister Sam, Pam Dauber and Joel Brooks, as I mentioned before, as well as David Naughton and Jenny O'Hara, reunited to film a public service announcement in Schaefer's honor for the center to prevent handgun violence. Wow, that's nice. Yeah, and a lot of shows actually did did the same, but this was a big deal because they haven't been on the air in a couple of years. Yeah, and but that was what like really put her on the map, and they all rec and they all also loved her. They were all yeah. so devastated. The showrunner was devastated. Um, just everybody was really like torn up about this. And as further evidence of that, in the season th six, episode three, 
I don't know what I wrote here. Basically, the MacGyver episode, The Gun, which was episode three of season six, uh-huh. it aired a year after Schaefer died in 1990, and it was inspired by her murder, as was season two, episode 12 of Law and Order, not the Dun Dun, the Chris Noth one. Um, that okay. episode was titled Starstruck, and it aired in 1982. And you can only rent Law and Order episodes on Prime, but it's for like two bucks. And there's nowhere you can get it for free for now unless Peacock decides to stop fucking charging money for it on their so-called free service. Um, yeah. But you can find the full episode of the MacGyver episode, The Gun, on YouTube. Okay. So in, 19, in, in 1929, no, in 2019, I don't know. 30 years since Schaefer's death, ABC's 2020 did a special on her murder titled Your Biggest Fan, which I know you got to title it something, but like, whew, maybe a little less after school, especially. Yeah. So the episode included interviews from her family, Marsha Clark, Pam Dauber, um, Lynn Marta, and Paul Hallams, the guy that arrested Bardo, among others. And you can watch uh-huh. it on ABC's website for free. Oh, nice. Yeah. And then the 2002 film Moonlight Mile was written and directed by Brad Silberling, who you probably know as being the guy who did the series of Unfortunate Events movie and Casper and Judging Amy, which I guess is the more successful of the three. However, which of the things have I seen and which have I not? I'll give you a hint. Yeah. Um, So the movie starred Jake Gyllenhaal, Ellen Pompeo, Susan Sarandon, and Dustin Hoffman, and was inspired by Silberling's own experience because he had been Schaefer's boyfriend for a few years up until her death. Oh. Yeah. They had met on a blind date while Silberling was still in film school, and Schaefer had just begun working on My Sister Sam, so they kind of leaned on each other through the beginning of both of their careers. Yeah. And Silberling later said of their relationship, quote, it got very serious to the point where it scared the hell out of us. I was 23. She was 19. She didn't perceive herself as a celebrity. She didn't live that way. End quote. Mm. So they were massively in love. Like people were all like kind of expecting them to get married. The people who knew that they were together. Yeah. Um, so the movie tells the story of a man's grief after his fiance is senselessly murdered in a robbery gone bad days before their wedding. And it has a 6.3 out of 10 on IMDb, an 83% Google score, and a 63% tomato meter rating. But tomato meter rating, I don't know what is wrong with me today. It's That's all the a hard smoke. One. It's the smoke. And 66% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes with the critics consensus being, quote, though the story feels rather contrived, Moonlight Mile is redeemed by the good performances of its cast, end quote. And personally, I think based on the fact that this was inspired by, you know, a true story, like the actual fucking death of the dude who wrote and directed the movie, it can't very well be contrived now, can it? But like, what do I know? But yeah. So while Schaefer, meanwhile may not have had the incredible career she hoped for. Um, she, Like I said before, she really wanted to have a legacy in film. And she may not have had a legacy in film, but she did make a huge impact and have a legacy in another way. And after her murder, it was basically like, because the trial was so heavily publicized and people in Hollywood knew about it and like everybody knew about it, it was concluded that Bardo was able to find out so much personal information about her because there were not any laws established to protect celebrities private information and this was kind of the light bulb that like oh we should probably protect not just celebrities but like um most people yeah so um one of these like things that was passed because of her murder was the driver's privacy protection act which was a federal statute passed by the U.S. Congress in 1994 to prevent the State Department of Motor Vehicles from disclosing the home addresses of residents. Mm. Schaefer's murder also helped lead to the classification of stalking as a felony in the state of California in 1990, 
which has since potentially saved the lives of celebrities such as Madonna, Taylor Swift, and Kendall Jenner. Yeah, and I was just going to say, too, that um, I guess that was at a time because she, she was, like, they were able to get the address by just, like, giving her name and stuff. But a lot of celebrities now, like, I have some celebrities that live in our town, mm-hmm. and their houses are under, like, some LLC, or they're under, like, their manager's name. Yep. So, like, you can't, like, if you say, uh, who owns this house? It's not going to say whoever it is. Right. It's going to say... Um, Beyonce's manager. <laughs> it'll say, like, <laughs> such and such LLC. Like, just some random-ass name LLC. Not Beyonce's LLC. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so that ended up making a huge impact. Um, many also credit Schaefer's murder with being the event that rocked Hollywood so much that it brought awareness to the need for gun control. As I said before, the cast of My Sister Sam did a PSA. The cast of Family Ties did a PSA, and they were one of the bigger ones out back then. Um, like It got to the point where like Hollywood became so aware of it. And now like you see a lot of celebrities are always like pushing for more gun control. And this is what kind of started that, for lack of a better word, I don't know why I said this in my notes, started that fire. I think I just have it on the brain. Um, But yeah, so it has since become like a hot button issue advocated for by many in the industry. And that's thanks to the notoriety of her murder in Mm -hmm. part. Um, Finally, Schaefer's parents, Dana and Benson, have gone on to become active advocates for gun control in their home state of Oregon, as well as nationally. They go around now and speak at hearings and for public speaking engagements about their daughter's murder and the need for stronger gun legislation. And Mm. they've been threatened. They've been, like, harassed. Like, it doesn't matter. The profile I read on them, actually, Dana Schaefer went to go speak at, like, a public forum or something about the need for gun control. And she basically was booed from the moment she walked in the room until the moment she sat down to speak and was just like, oh, were they booing me? I didn't notice. Mm. Like, badass mama. Yeah. But, yeah. So that is the story of the very be quite on a short story again she was only 21 um of rebecca schaefer wow yeah 21 that's so crazy i know like i mean your life that's is old, just starting that's how old matthew shepherd was too right yeah 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 and look at them both making such huge legacies after such a short life but it was because they like uh, i can't i can't yeah like, you don't want to think that there needs to be a crime like this for people to be like, oh, maybe we shouldn't just give out random people's names and Home addresses. addresses for a dollar. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yep. All right. Super fun. Well, that was a depressing one. Thanks for that. You're welcome. Sorry about that. Love you, pieces. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what we have coming next week. Honestly, I haven't looked at the schedule. But... <laughs> Hopefully it's something less depressing. I don't know. It's going to be on Pee Wee Herman jacking it in a Florida yeah. movie theater. <laughs> if you want something less depressing, we have some other episodes. We have some like, fun ones. We just did Firefest. Firefest, that's a fun one. Yeah, that's a fun one. People just get financially hurt. No one died. No, nobody died. Like, I mean, yeah, Kendall Jenner looked a little stupid. But then again, Rebecca Schaefer basically saved her ass. So, I mean, she can look a little stupid. Yeah. She doesn't even look the same anymore anyway. So it's fine. Whatever. Anyway, um, you can go to our website. It's crimeculturepodcast.tumblr.com. Um, on there are links to all of our social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And not LinkedIn. And not LinkedIn and uh, Patreon. Yeah. And email. And, and email. We're on the email. <laughs> we're, on, we're on that email. Email us at crimeculturepod. <laughs> at gmail.com you can email us uh episode suggestions um mm-hmm. we're headed into spooktober sooner than Hell you think yeah. so if you want to hear something specific we have eight episodes coming in one month so give us some ideas because we want to cover stuff that you want to hear about 
So do that. And on that note, we will see you next Tuesday. Hell yeah. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.